Today we got three crazy stories ranging from a lost civilization to cryptic otherworldly books. Conspiracies that have been covered up by time or people. Kicking it off, Musaya has something quite extraordinary. Now this darkest secret is about a place in Mozambique called Mount Liko. Now the story of Mount Liko begins about six years ago when Julian Bayless, a conservation scientist and butterfly expert, uh, happened to spot a small forest on top of what appeared to be a mountain using Google Earth. He's been using Google Earth for his research for about 15 years now. In February 2017, he finally found gold. Not literal gold, a mountain. Like I mentioned, Bayless found Mount Liko in Mozambique and decided to go check it out himself. He went to the base of this 410-foot mountain and began to send drones in the air to spot out the area. This was no small feat, however. The base of the mountain was surrounded by farmland, dense forest, no roads, and many waterways. So it was a very hard, remote place to get to. But Bayless did it. With his drone research, he discovered that there was a lush forest atop of this mountain. Decided to collect his data, get his P's and Q's all aligned here, and gather a team of 28 people. And about a year later, that team of people decided to go back to the mountain and actually ascend the mountain to see what's up there. Now, before the team decided to go up the mountain, they decided to go around the area, talk to the locals and see if they could uh, get some knowledge about this mountain. And what they found and the tales that they heard were quite shocking. Most of the locals claimed that nobody had been up there. But the further they dug and the more people they talked to, many of them were quite elderly, they discovered some dark secrets about this mountain. A few locals actually talked about stories of Germans being in Mozambique during World War I, coming in and ruling the areas and forcing the locals out of their area. The local lore of the story goes something like this. The Germans invade. As the locals get scared and scared and scared, they resort to the one thing that they know, and that's the mountain. So they begin to go up this mountain with whatever tools and resources they have, and eventually some of them make it up there. However, the Germans see them, because it takes them a while, and they actually go through and they cut all the ropes of all the people, leading to potentially hundreds of people being stranded atop of this mountain with no way to get down. Other communities around the area told a little different tale. They talked of a tribe of little people that lived on top of this mountain. As the locals would get close to the base of the mountain, the little people would throw snakes down upon them to scare them away. There was also a tale of the Portuguese army coming through to Mozambique similar situation to the German story that we heard earlier. And, and that Portuguese army also tried to climb the top of this mountain, but was met with the little people. And when they got halfway up there, the little people cut their ropes and all of them fell to their deaths. Now, tales of little people on top of mountains is not uh, unique to this area. There's also tales of little people atop of Mount Mulanji in southern Malawi. Now, taking these stories from the locals, 
they decided to collect their information, come back together at their camp and discuss what they all heard. Pretty much everybody came to the conclusion that the mountain was cursed, haunted, etc., from the horrors that have happened in the past around Mount Linko. As a veteran explorer, Bayless decided that with all these warning signs that he was going to continue to push forward. After rounding up 28 people to take on this dangerous journey up this mountain to the unknown, took a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of research to even get to this spot, and there was no going back. And in 2018, the group of 28 people began their journey up Mount Lico. Like I mentioned earlier, the mountain is over 400 feet tall. That is two leaning tower of Pisa's stacked on top of each other. Quite, quite the distance here. Like vertical or are they still leaning? That's a good question. You're talking full erect or like half chub? There's a difference. I think you, you got to measure when it's like fully erect, right? Nobody sends their like, their like flaccid numbers, you know? <laughs> I All measure right. flaccid. That's wild. That's bold. That's actually cool because if you think about it, you set the expectations low. Right. So then when time to go, she's like, what? I thought you said one and a half. And you're like, <laughs> you're ready for three. <laughs> I got three on you. But she didn't like it. She's like, hold the fuck up. Said you were four, not five. <laughs> not 12. <laughs> now, the group began their journey, and overall, it took everybody approximately about an hour, 45 minutes to get on top of this mountain. The hike was incredibly tough and challenging, but with no stop in end, they had to keep pushing on and on and on. And when they reached the peak of this mountain and they pulled up on top, what they saw took their breath away. Many people from the group talked about this climb in their journals and talked about this was the toughest thing they've ever had to do physically. A lot of these people were not professional climbers, although they were some. A lot of these people were just scientists, regular old people like me and you. And I don't know about you guys climbing a 400 foot mountain right now sounds tiring. I could do it, but gotta get it done. I, it, it would take everything, every ounce of of uh, I, every ounce of uh, willpower I could muster up. I'd probably like throw up at the end. There were some stories of people reaching the top and throwing up. A couple of them, for sure. Can you imagine, like, oh, like a whole bunch of fit dudes back then climbing up the mountain, and then there's like me, just like me, but back then there's just the grits like throwing up at the top. Many people from the group talked about their jackets that they were wearing were completely drenched in sweat, where they could actually take off their clothing and hold it up, and sweat was literally dripping out from how much physical exertion it took these people to get on top of this mountain. But once they were up there, caught their breath, when they began to look around, they described this area as paradise. Mass amounts of wildlife was upon this mountain. Mind you, 400 feet in the air, been hundreds of years. And what they found were small mammals, reptiles, amphibians, crabs, fish, a couple birds, and two antelope. And an army, an army of butterflies. I'm talking of thousands of butterflies. A fleet. <laughs> eating butterflies for sustenance. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get them with their caterpillar because they're nice and juicy. You have to eat like a thousand of them. <laughs> they got it. They got it there. When reviewing their camera traps, that's when they actually captured pictures of two antelope that were on top of this mountain. 
leading to the questions, how the hell did these antelope get up there? How long have they been up there? How did they survive up there? How many were originally up there? A lot of questions. A lot of questions. Spiders. Lots and lots and lots of spiders. Almost every single tree was connected to another tree via a channel of spider webs. Crew would walk around constantly knocking them down. Many of them joke that they got really good with the Matrix classic move where, you know, the lean back when they're yeah, like the leaning back. The bullet dodge, yeah. Many of the researchers believe that there were so many spider webs because there wasn't many birds up there. And birds commonly feed on the spiders. So the spiders over years, hundreds of years, have kind of ran rampant and almost took over the island. They also found caterpillars. Big, fat, furry fucking caterpillars. Four, five, six inches long. It makes sense for all the butterflies. Now, the most shocking discovery in bringing this whole story together, what the research group found was the most mysterious of them all. They found three handmade pots next to a clearly big water source that were partially buried in the dirt that looked to be in pretty good shape. When they went over and examined these these pots, again, they could clearly see that these were professionally made, good, sturdy pots, which brings credibility to a lot of the local stories that people have been on top of this mountain. Many think that this is the last remaining artifacts of those locals that were drove up the mountain by the German military during World War One and was brutally sabotaged with no way of getting out. Or perhaps it's remnants of the little people tribe that lived on top of Mount Liko hundreds of years ago that would throw snakes on people as they climbed. And as the Portuguese army began to close in, they cut their ropes while they were halfway up with all the army falling to their death. Are there bones? Now, they did not find any bones. However, they were there for two weeks, most of the crew being animal wildlife research people. They are not trained medical professionals looking and identifying bones, human bones. So what do you think? You think it was that was the, the local people ran up from the Germans or was there really little people tribe that lived on top here? Can I just say the balls you have to have to pick up a snake and throw it at somebody <laughs> multiple times? That's wild. A, like a supply of snakes on yeah, hand ready. Like get snake buckets. They're just grabbing handfuls of snakes and tossing them at people. Now, this is like very, very loose. And there's like a little bit more research I did that I didn't write in my story, but I'll talk about it real quickly. A lot of people actually took it a step further and thought that that um back in the day that like rainmakers would go on top of this mountain and do like rituals to produce rain for like their crops. And, and they would, they would um, use snakes as like part of their ritual. So essentially uh -oh. it became like a snake forest. That's crazy. And they lived there. That's wild. Or they figured out some way to get up there. But back in the day, what I think of is interesting is like, how did these people even with the World War One with the German army, like how the fuck did they get up there? 
They don't have like a bunch of climbing equipment like they do in 2023. Nowadays, like there's people and there's people that have been there since then, obviously, since it's been discovered um, in like 2018. And like there's people that are expert climbers that can climb that in like 10, 15 minutes. I feel like you'll find a way. Obviously, they found a way. Now, Rebel, your story literally blows my mind. Can you fill in the people? We gonna blow the shit out of it. All right. We're going to blow hard. Pause. So I want to make an announcement before I get into this story, because it is so out there. I want everyone to know that this is a real, real story documented to a T. Just keep that in mind. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. In 1983, a man walks into a military office, sets down a paper, giving a step-by-step process on how to have an out-of-body experience, astral project, and even meet God himself. A man named Robert Monroe was laying down on his bed. He put on some headphones. He began listening to various frequencies in order to obtain more knowledge in his sleep. See, Robert believed in hypnopedia, which is learning while you're asleep. And on this specific night, Robert experienced something he could never anticipate it for. As Robert was laying there in his bed, listening to the frequencies, he would begin to feel his body become paralyzed. An overwhelming sensation of paralyzation, as well as a slight rumble. That rumble eventually became a steady vibration throughout his entire body. And then all of a sudden, a bright light appeared. And in Robert's perspective, the world caved in on itself. Confused at what just happened, Robert began to study his surroundings, unaware of what was going on. When he looked around, he noticed some things were odd here. He noticed that it, one, he was floating off the ground. And then two, he was floating on his ceiling, looking down at his body. Robert would eventually coin this phenomenon as an out-of-body experience an OBE for short. And eventually he ended up creating the Monroe Institute, all because of this incident. Throughout the years, the Institute ended up studying these events in depth. They wanted to figure out why these things were happening, but more importantly, how to make them happen again. And the wildest part is that they succeeded. A method called the Gateway Process was created, which was a step-by-step guide on how to separate one's consciousness from their own body, but it did so much more than just that. Fast forwarding to 1983, Lieutenant Colonel 
Wayne M. McDonnell submitted a classified report titled Analysis and Assessment of Gateway Process. McDonald begins to explain in his report that the gateway experience is more than just an out-of-body experience, and that we could really just control reality itself. In the report, he carefully and cautiously starts to explain the science behind this phenomenon in order to avoid occult connotations that are typically associated with this type of experience. He begins to go in depth about a form of meditation called hemisync. Now, hemisync is a state of consciousness when the brain waves of both hemispheres in the brain are equal in amplitude and frequency. This is all done by exerting one frequency in one ear and another frequency in your other ear, which allows the brain to compensate for the differential within the frequencies. And the report explains that the Monroe Institute created a step-by-step -step guide for this process. Those guides are called the gateway tapes. But McDonald goes on to explain that why it happens is just as important as how to make it happen. We need more explanation than what traditional physics can teach us. Thus, bringing us to quantum physics. The report begins to explain how the hologram theory is plausible using the work of multiple physicists, ultimately stating that we create the reality that we see. Similar to like a VR headset, except you get every sense throughout the entire experience. You get taste, smell, touch, so on and so forth. McDonald goes on to talk about how to escape this hologram. And in doing so, we need to learn how frequencies work. Now, when looking at an oscillating frequency, such as like a brainwave, there are always two points at rest. The existence of each point permits the energy to change direction. Otherwise, it would not be a wave. Now, I know this is very hard to follow with. If you're listening on audio, please watch it on video. I highly recommend this because it'll make a lot more sense. But it is right before those points that energy clicks out of time and space and joins the infinite. To better understand this, when the wavelength drops below Planck's distance, which is the smallest distance that we could possibly measure, we enter into a new realm. In this realm, time and space ceases to exist. McDonald writes, It is possible to see how human consciousness brought to a sufficiently altered state could obtain information concerning the past, present, and future. And then he goes on to write about the many practical capabilities that this state could offer us, such as astral projecting, problem solving by reaching one's higher self, color breathing, and so much more. Fascinated by this realm or true reality, McDonald describes this realm as the absolute. McDonald goes on to state that the absolute is the infinite realm of consciousness and how every single religion to have ever existed speaks of the absolute, all the way from Tibetan monks to modern Christianity. He then writes on page 24 of the document and states, this is so because in order to obtain self-consciousness, the consciousness of the absolute must project a hologram of itself and perceive it. A hologram is a mirror image of the absolute in infinity, but is one step removed from the absolute and is an actual agent of all creation. And the eternal thought or concept of self, which results from the self-consciousness, serves the... The sentence never finishes. Page 25 was never included. The page that gives us a conclusion about uniting all religious ideologies, as well as possibly the creation of all existence, just disappeared. 
The report goes from page 24 to page 26. And page 26 goes on to conclude the entire report, not mentioning anything about the absolute. However, when people asked the CIA why this was, and they demanded page 25 to come out because people were very interested about this, the CIA said they never received it either. Now, obviously, a lot of people thought the CIA was lying about this. However, the Monroe Institute said they had the final page, page 25. And then the Institute ended up releasing the entire report as it should have been from the beginning. On the missing page, McDonald goes on to state that we are all part of the absolute and that every other person's consciousness is all one consciousness as a whole. Do you think it's possible that we could escape reality of what we know it by following these instructions? Would you like to try? Because we can try it. We could try it here on Plastic Lounge. What if we get a thousand likes? We'll try. Yeah. I'll shoot for a hundred <laughs> likes with this one. Give us a hundred likes on this video and we'll try to disappear from the simulation. Or if you're listening on audio, give us a five star rating or anything else. Just help us. We'll bring you back the secrets. We'll, we'll share with you what we find. Or you can try it for yourself. I'll leave links in the description. You guys can go try it yourselves. Tell us what you find. On the subject of finding things that are hidden, I bring to you today a story about a book. It's no ordinary book. It's a book that would plague those who possessed it with a lifetime of mystery and obsession, one that would never be solved. This book is the only book in history of the world that has never been read. In 1912, a rare book dealer named Wilfred Voynich was looking for his latest book that he could sell to the universities and museums of England. Wilfred would travel far and wide. He would find these rare books from earlier centuries and he would sell them back to schools and museums for a high price and he made a living doing this. He lived with his wife in London at the time and during this time his travels took him to Rome, Italy. Voynich heard that a certain college in the area near Rome, Italy had a large underground library filled with past rare books. So he arrives at the college, they grant him access to the underground library where they kept old books some academic, some about alchemy, and he starts rifling through them, blowing the dust off of shelves, opening chests, looking underneath desks. Voynich is just combing this place over, looking for anything he could bring back to London with him. Now he had been doing this for a while, so he could immediately look at something, flip a few pages, and kind of identify if it was worth anything or not. After only grabbing what seemed to be handful of books that he could take back with him didn't really fetch a high price so he was kind of bummed out he turns to leave and then he notices a chest that he didn't open underneath one of the shelves so he kneels down takes his hand and he wipes the dust off of this chest he sees that it's latched without a lock he pops the latch off opens the chest there's nothing in the chest except for this tiny little 
unassuming book. It's about the size of a standard diary or journal these days, maybe a little smaller. It's got no discerning markings on the cover or the back. It's all brown, and it's in rough shape. Intrigued, Voynich reaches down, grabs it, blows the dust off it, and opens the first page. When he opens the first page, the first thing that happens is a piece of paper falls out, was folded up in between the cover and the first page. So he drops all the books in his left hand and he quickly catches the little piece of paper that was folded up, sets the book down, and that's what he reads first, is this piece of paper. Now this piece of paper was old as dirt, hundreds and hundreds of years old. So it was in bad shape as well. He had to be very careful while opening it. Reading over the piece of paper, he could only make out a few names and nothing else because it was written in a language he didn't understand. But he recognized and he knew someone that could translate this letter. So he folded it back up so he could take it to his friend and they could read it together later. Picking the book back up and flipping through a few pages, he's immediately intrigued by what he finds. The book is written in small paragraphs, left to right, and also filled with very colorful drawings and depictions of different things. Voynich knows he's got gold, so he bundles everything back in his arms and he leaves the college, bidding them farewell, makes his way back to London. They figured out that the person who wrote the cover letter was named Jan Merrick Marcy. To summarize what he wrote, kind of said he was giving this book to someone who the previous owner wanted to give it to, to be deciphered. The person who wrote the cover letter was just the middleman. Looking over closely at the book, Voynich and his scholar friend determined that the language the book was written in could not be understood. It's no language they've ever seen before, nor did it resemble anything legible or anything they could translate, combining both of their academic knowledge. Now, this book would go on to be coined the Voynich Manuscript, as it had no discernible name before that point of when Wilfred Voynich discovered it in 1912. The Voynich Manuscript would go unsolved and unread during the entire time that Wilfred Voynich owned it, up until his death. Prior to his death, he left it to his wife, who then left it to her friend, who then sold it to a man who ultimately donated it to the Yale University Rare Book Collection, where it still stays today unsolved. Now let's look at what makes the Voynich manuscript so weird. Like I said before, you can't read this book. This language is undecipherable. Some say it could be just that, a cipher or some sort of code. Some say it's shorthand of some forgotten language, but some say the book is written in a language not of this world. Now, aside from the language and the paragraphs and the letters and the words, there are numerous drawings and depictions of different things. Using these illustrations, scholars over the years have determined that the book is divided up into six segments. A herbal section, a astronomical section, a cosmological section, a biological section, 
a pharmaceutical section and a section about recipes. Now this is all judging off of the illustrations and nothing else because we can't read this thing. Now that might not sound too weird, but when you look closely, the illustrations, it's everything but normal. Most of the plants in the book are not familiar at all. They don't exist on earth. The leaves and petals on plants are mangled. The roots are human organs. Many of the illustrations depict pregnant nude women laying in some sort of green liquid. And the green liquid is interconnected by a series of weird pipes stemming from a giant otherworldly fruit tree. In the middle of the book, the entire book can be folded out into kind of like a Playboy magazine centerfold type deal, and it depicts accurate star constellations and solar system information. However, there's a lot of it that doesn't make sense or we recognize. Flipping through even more of the pages, goes on to reveal more strange otherworldly plants, more alien looking technology, and more naked women swimming and sliding through pipes of green liquid. Now there's been a bunch of theories about this thing, none of which carry any water or can help decipher what is written in this book. Now some group of investigators have gone on to try to decipher this thing. They've called it a hoax. However, that has deemed to be impossible because a group of scholars have radiocarbon dated the pages in the book back to the 1400s. However, the ink used to draw and paint the pictures was also radiocarbon dated back to the 1600s. So that means that someone had to have a blank 200 page book for like 200 years just laying around and then decided to write an entire book in it. One of these people that tried to decipher the Voynich manuscript was William Friedman, who would go on to be the first United States cryptologist when the NSA was formed. Friedman had the Voynich manuscript for 30 years, working on it with a team of 40 people, and they could not crack the code. To this day, we don't know what's in this book. We don't know what it's about. We don't know what the drawings are of the weird naked women connected to pipes and green liquid. A lot of people think this is proof of another dimension or an off-world visitor. But what do you think's in the Voynich manuscript and what would you do if you had it? Um, garage sale. What do you think it is? Necronomicon. There's nothing religious in there. It's all like plants and pharmaceuticals, like alchemy, recipes, a lot of women. <laughs> There's a lot of women in that damn thing. I mean, is it too far-fetched to think it was just somebody's like doodle book? But what about the language? Maybe that person in their mind made their own alphabet. Speaking of that, it was only comprised of 25 different characters. A whole book. So a lot of people think it was like shorthand of some form. I mean, the English letter alphabet's 26. But you guys think like the diagrams of all the crazy alien-like plants or just doodles? Like they weren't just sketches and stuff. Like there was like 
like how you would diagram a plant in modern science, how there would be arrows pointing to like the petals and stuff. There was it. That's how it looked. But it was all alien like these plants are not on Earth. Maybe it was like some interdimensional rift that somehow brought like a piece of like a separate galaxy's book, like a school book. Maybe that's like the thir- like a third grade alien I guess there's a lot of women in there. What kind of women, though? They're like human women? Yeah, they were all human women. They were all naked. They were all uh, Caucasian looking. And they were all pregnant. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally some kids. It's like you go to school, you know, a bunch of kids, like a bunch of little boys drew dicks everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's basically the same thing. We've except talked about this before. Except they're just drawing me. like what they think a naked woman looks like. But then they're like, oh, yeah, the pl- they have plants, too. And then they just start going elaborate into plants. They all chill in green pools, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what women do. <laughs> and the, 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 the juice in the pool is like out of an alien strawberry. Totally, <laughs> totally doing it for me. <laughs> a lot of people, um, a lot of like online sleuths, there's a large community that think it's a... Um, ancient 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 women's health journal some sort of women's health uh, guide they they connected it to like some of the astrology in the book uh points to like bloodletting which like in ancient times women did that like 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 menstrual yeah i think and you couldn't like it, it could that connected to astrology because they you couldn't do it during a certain uh, time period, something to do with the stars. I'm telling this really bad, but it all connects. Um, back then, like you couldn't bloodlet during a certain like lunar cycle or some shit. You know what I mean? You had to do it between this and this and this. And when the fucking planets aligned and the moon is in this position, this is what you do. Like it was all wacky back then. Some witch shit. Speaking of which. There is speculation, there's no proof, but there's speculation that um, the famous John D. may have been in possession of this book at one time. We'll go, we'll, we'll dive into him in a different episode. So there you have it. Three more insane underground dug up from the dirt conspiracies for you to snack on while you battle the boring reality that is life. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching another episode of Plastic Lounge Podcast. We appreciate every single one of you. We also really appreciate our members. You can be a member now if you want to support us directly. Like the video, subscribe, comment down below if you have any questions or personal experiences of your own. Join the Discord, chat with us offline. 